Hello and welcome to Tales of the Wild. My name's Mark, I'm the host of the podcast where you can learn about the zoology of unusual animal species through stories. This episode is part two of our caribou tale. This tale is based upon a true story in which a group of caribou were left alone on an island in the middle of the Bering Sea during the Second World War. The idea was for us upright walking apes to use them as a source of emergency food rations during the war. We pick up on this tale ten years after the group of 30 caribou were last observed on the uninhabitable island known as St. Matthew's Island. Last time we heard about their perilous journey as they were transported to the island from their farm in Alaska. We talked about what these animals really are, a true deer of the family Curvidae, which is an antler-shedding migratory ruminant found in the colder climates of the northern hemisphere. Despite a somewhat difficult journey, the island did have one resource which the hungry caribou were very happy to come across. That resource is the symbiotic organism that we know as lichen, a favourite of the caribou. Since that discovery, it became clear that the caribou could survive on the island much longer than you might otherwise expect. But nothing lasts forever, does it? Welcome to Tales of the Wild. In 1954, two upright walking ape researchers visit the island. The war had ended almost a decade earlier and any plans to use the caribou as an emergency food resource had long since been forgotten by the apes at the United States Coast Guard. On arriving at the island, the researchers were completely shocked at what they saw. They had expected to find little evidence of the reindeer besides perhaps a few bones, but this was not the case. It's true that there was no longer a herd of 30 caribou living on the island, but in the absence of any predators and with the abundance of lichen, their numbers now exceeded 700 individuals. Ivan was no longer the only male. He had some competition from his sons, but he mostly tried to stay out of their way. Despite having very large antlers, at the age of 11 years old, he was quite ancient in terms of a male caribou. He was more interested in eating lichen and going for quiet walks along the coast than he was in competing for the hundreds of females now on the island. It was the breeding season, and he watched from a distance as a couple of younger males took part in what is known as the rut. The young bulls were clashing antlers as they tried to physically force each other away from the females. The antlers consisted of a main stem and a number of forked spikes called tines, which were somewhat related to the age of the bull, with the older bulls carrying more tines. During this phase of a deer's life, the males undergo some physiological changes driven in part by a large increase in testosterone. The bulls will call out and strut around to get the attention of the females. Usually there's a dominant bull in control of a number of reproductive females. He will tolerate a number of satellite males as long as they're generally younger and less impressive. 
These males occasionally have the chance to breed if a female leaves the group controlled by the dominant bull. Some of the satellite bulls are old enough and large enough to try to challenge the dominant bull. Over time, the cooling and fighting without sufficient time for recovery exhaust the dominant bull, and he becomes less controlling over the females in his group. This is the point in time that the younger satellite bulls have been waiting for, and they use this as an opportunity to compete for the remaining females who are not yet pregnant. Fights between deer are rarely fatal. The antlers are not designed to kill, but rather designed to provide an honest demonstration of strength. The deer don't really want to kill each other, and this comes back to the strength in numbers herd strategy that we talked about in the last episode. If the dominant male would start to kill other males, then he would become more vulnerable to predation. An interesting study revealed that antlers in caribou have not only evolved for the purpose of securing breeding rights, the fact that the females also carry antlers suggests that they have an alternative purpose. In 2018, a Nature publication entitled Predation Shapes the Evolutionary Traits of Curved Weapons demonstrated that the antlers have a secondary function, and that is to fend off predators. Some of the evidence that points towards this is the fact that caribou keep their antlers into spring rather than shedding them in winter. If they could shed them in winter, this would save them the energy costs of carrying around a pair of heavy antlers outside of the breeding season. It would also allow them to start growing new antlers earlier, which would end up in a larger pair of antlers and give them a competitive advantage during the rut. The team found that wolves in Yellowstone National Park were 3.6 times more likely to attack caribou that had shed their antlers compared to caribou that were still carrying them. This tells us that there seems to be a trade-off between risking higher levels of predation and taking on the energy costs of carrying antlers for a longer period of time. It's not clear how important this is, but caribou have been seen also using their antlers to remove layers of snow to expose underlying plants or lichen. Ivan looked past the fighting bulls and saw his mother. It was surprising that she was still alive. As with many mammalian species, the female caribou live longer than the males. In this case, a female caribou can live up to about 16 years. She was not in her best state though. Ivan could see the bumps of her hip bones through the thinning fur on her coat, and she moved with less energy and had developed a chronic limp. On days when the lichen had not been softened by rainfall, her worn down teeth did not let her eat as much food as her body needed. Ivan didn't like to see her like this, and while he hated to think about it too much, at times he wished that she would just pass away peacefully in her sleep. Of course, there were no predators large enough to hunt caribou on the island, so the young, sick and old were much more numerous than you would expect from a herd of essentially wild caribou. He'd watched many of his aunts fall victim to hunger, disease and the harsh elements, and it sometimes seemed like predation by a wolf or a bear would not always be less cruel. As he walked watching her, he tripped on one of the many pairs of antlers that littered the ground. These were becoming more and more of a nuisance. The fact that the females also carried antlers made it much worse. 
When antlers start to grow, they're covered in a layer of skin which itself is covered in soft fur called velvet because of its texture. This skin is full of blood vessels which transport all of the nutrients required for antler growth. The velvet is not a permanent feature of the antlers, but a stage in a process called antlerogenesis, which precedes the hard calcification that follows to prepare the antlers for combat. The timing of this event is highly significant for the ancestors of Inuit people, who used the stages of the caribou cycle to track the time of year. One of these months, for example, is referred to as Amirajout, which translates to when the velvet falls off the caribou antlers. In the past and in the present, antler velvet is often collected from the ground and sold as medicine in China. Additionally, deer antler spray has been used to provide steroids to athletes worldwide. It was banned in the sporting events in 2011, following a $5 million lawsuit, which ended up with the manufacturer being sued because of the antler spray's high testosterone content, which resulted in competing athletes testing positive for steroids. For most of the caribou, life continued to be great on St. Matthew's Island after the researchers left. And the desolate landscape kept people away, and with their specialised adaptations, it kept the caribou safe. The days of enjoyment in this paradise were numbered, though. Ivan was doing his usual routine walk along the beach, when he realised his mother was missing. His heart started racing as he suddenly smelt alarm pheromones. A very interesting feature of most deer is that they have specialised scent glands in their hooves. In the case of caribou, they use this to signal danger to the rest of the herd. As a cold fear crept over Ivan's body and the hairs on the back of his neck stood on end, he followed the alarm pheromone. It was getting stronger and stronger as he approached a large rock. He slowly walked around the rock, getting ready to fight or flee, when he saw his mother lying down on the ground. At first he thought she'd been attacked, but she had no wounds. She looked very weak and very old. She must have been around 16 years old by now, he thought. He knew in the back of his mind what this meant. He had a sinking feeling inside as he stood over her. She looked at him with calm eyes. She'd chosen a nice spot, he thought, as he looked around the moss and lichen climbing over the grey rocks. The vast, expansive sky felt cold and empty as he watched his mother peacefully pass away. When she slowly let out her last breath, he was overcome by grief. The world didn't quite feel the same. He felt no amount of lichen could fill the void inside him. In fact, he didn't even want to eat lichen anymore. It just didn't feel right. He noticed as he was having this thought that he'd subconsciously started chewing on a juicy patch of lichen on the rocks and he quickly spat it out. Yes, out of respect for my mother, I will only eat mushrooms from now on, on Paradise Island. With that thought, he began munching on a red and white mushroom nearby, which tasted bitter and unpleasant. The taste of these fungi really matched his inner turmoil, he thought he was secretly already regressing his decision. A 
couple of hours later, and Ivan's eyes were as wide as his cloven hooves. They were glazed over, and his whole body was unusually still. He felt very sick, and could hear his heart beating loudly in his own head. Caribou don't sweat, but instead Ivan found himself salivating uncontrollably. He could hear thousands of tiny voices calling to him. They were coming from inside him, from his rumen. They called his name. Ivan. Look. They said. Look, Ivan. He opened his eyes and began seeing things that were not there. He saw death. He saw a grey stony beach covered in thousands of antlers, bones and fur. An antlered shadow walked slowly out of the sea and through the bodies. It moved like one of those upright walking apes, but carried huge antlers on its head. Ivan watched horrified as it moved, sucking the life out of everything around it and turning the lichen grey. He knew immediately who it was. That was Mayandash, he thought. He tried to hide, but the voices coming from his room and called out the name Mayandash. The shadowy, upright walking creature immediately noticed him with a sharp turn of the head and suddenly started running at him. Ivan started to panic and the scent glands in his hooves started firing uncontrollably. On smelling the pheromones, nearby reindeer ran to assist. They looked at Ivan, who was clearly out of his mind, but he did seem to be comforted by their arrival. They watched him, confused. I see you, Mayandash, Ivan said out loud, and the ghostly figure evaporated before his eyes just as it was about to reach him. He felt immediately warmer, and his breathing slowed down again. His visions took on a more positive note. He looked up to the sky and saw his mother's face. Ivan, you have forgotten me. No, how could I? You have forgotten who you are, and so forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Ivan. You are more than what you've become. You must take your place in the circle of life. How can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. The ring of eight caribou who had surrounded Ivan looked even more confused. They watched Ivan looking up to the sky with his eyes closed, making strange whistling sounds and salivating out the side of his mouth. Ivan watched his mother smile, turn around and start riding away into the sky. She had seven of her daughters with her, and one son. That's me, Ivan thought, and he started laughing when he noticed that he had a big red glowing nose. He realised in a certain way, he and his mother would always be together. He watched himself running with his mother and seven sisters up into the sky.
By the way, the original conception of eight reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh has been credited to an 1823 poem by Clement C. Moore called A Visit from St. Nicholas, which I won't repeat here because I don't think it's that good, but poets must have been in short supply because the concept has persisted for over 200 years and has since been built upon by a story by Robert May in 1939 who added a ninth reindeer called Rudolph. Rudolph was instructed by Santa to lead the others due to his unusual red glowing nose. Speaking of which, Ivan noticed that his nose had begun to shine, a bright red, as red as the mushroom he'd consumed. He found this hysterical in his state. He ran faster and faster into the night with his mother and seven sisters. When he looked back, he saw that he and the other reindeer were pulling what appeared to be a large olive green sleigh through the sky. Sitting on front of the sleigh was an angry moustached man who was yelling and smoking cigarettes and pulling hard on the reins. Ivan blinked his eyes and the moustached man was transformed into a baby in a crib. The baby was in a small room with a large nicotine stained wall upon which the shadows of a male and female upright walking ape were moving with angry gestures. There was a smashing sound like broken glass and now the baby had transformed into a toddler playing with an empty whiskey bottle on a dusty wooden floor in an old cabin. There was snoring coming from a nearby bed. Then the toddler became a child, being picked on by older boys on his way back from school. Then the child became a young teenager throwing rocks at ducks on a muddy riverbank. Then he was an older teenager holding a bouquet of flowers at a bus stop, soaking wet from the rain. The bus arrived and the teenager smiled, holding up the flowers in nervous anticipation, but nobody got out and the bus drove off. He threw the flowers to the floor, stamping on them and cursing. Then the teenager transformed into a young man shouting and pushing other drunken patrons in a smoky bar in the city. Then he became a middle-aged man curled up on the floor of a jail, sobbing, with his head in his hands. Then he became very thin in dirty clothes in a countryside cabin, chopping wood and smoking cigarettes. Finally, he became an older man with a cigarette hanging out the corner of his mouth and a bottle of whiskey in the glove box, shouting at his animal passengers to be quiet. Now he transformed back into the man riding the olive green sleigh, though he was wearing a red hat and had a white moustache and a white long beard. He was sipping on rum and smoking a cigarette and laughing. Ivan was completely blown away by the visions he was seeing. The ring of caribou looked at Ivan, and then at each other with blank faces, and then back at Ivan, who was now lying on his side with his eyes closed and running with his legs while making snorting sounds. Then everything in Ivan's vision began to slow down and become wobbly. He felt the cold weather and the weight of his body again. He looked at the seven reindeer staring at him. He didn't know what had happened. He couldn't quite remember the details, but despite the headache, he felt like the universe made a little bit more sense now. And while he did feel sad about losing his mother, he felt okay with being sad, and he left the area with a newfound sense of peace. The mushrooms that Ivan had consumed are known as Amanita muscaria, or fly agaric. These are a highly hallucinogenic mushroom which caribou love and will go out of their way to find. 
After consuming the mushroom, reports state that they behave drunkenly, running around aimlessly and making strange noises. Head twitching is also common. The mushrooms are toxic for us upright walking apes. Reindeer have such a strong taste for this mushroom that they will actively seek it out and drink the urine of other reindeer who have been eating these mushrooms. At some point in history, some highly experimental Inuits, intrigued by this behaviour, wanted to find out what they were missing. They tried drinking the reindeer urine themselves, and soon realised you could get the psychedelic effects of the mushrooms they were eating without ingesting dangerous levels of poison. From that point onwards, drinking reindeer urine has become a significant part of the culture of reindeer herders. But reindeer have long been providing apes with more than just hallucinogenic urine. They've been revered by those of us living in colder climates in the north for thousands of years. They provide almost everything we need to survive. Their meat and milk provides nourishment. Their fur and leather provides insulation against the cold weather and also a fabric for construction. They are also used sometimes as beasts of burden to transport heavy objects across the desolate, snowy environment. The lives of many have been so entwined with the reindeer that it's not surprising that there are so many myths and legends about them. Some of the Sami tribes, who inhabited northern Scandinavia and Russia, believed that they were themselves descendants of reindeer, and in their mythology they had an ancestor who was a reindeer shapeshifter. His name was Mayandash and his mother was a shaman and a Sami witch. Mayandash's father was a real reindeer. Mayandash lived with his mother in a tent that was completely made of reindeer fur and reindeer bones. When he was inside the tent, he had a human body, but when he stepped outside, he transformed into a reindeer. They lived in the world of the great reindeer spirit that was separated from the human world. Mayandash got very lonely living in the tent and he told his mother he would like to have a human wife. His mother was naturally not very pleased about this, but she loved her son, and so she travelled to Earth to find a human wife for her son. Mayandash and his wife had many children, and each time the children went outside the tent, they turned into reindeer. Mayandash was the were-reindeer who walked among the dead in Ivan's vision. Unfortunately, this vision turned out to be a premonition of things to come. It was only a few years later when the caribou were showing visible signs that their health was deteriorating. Ivan was fortunate enough to pass away when there was still plenty of food around, but now the majority of reindeer were hungry and thin. Ivan II inherited the island when his father passed away peacefully in 1960 but he'd inherited a very different kind of island to the one he grew up in. The beaches were now littered with antlers and skeletons of literally thousands of reindeer. They were picked clean of any flesh by seabirds, crabs and arctic foxes. The trees and rocks of the island which were once rich with lichen were now almost barren. Sedges and grasses were now expanding into sites previously occupied by lichens due to the now nutrient-rich soil which had been fertilised over the decades by thousands of reindeer. These plants were not as edible to the reindeer as the lichen, and in 1964, during a year of particularly heavy snow, the population of 6,000 caribou 
crashed to just 42 individuals, including 41 females and one male. The animals were all in extremely poor health, and within a couple of years, there were no more reindeer living on St. Matthew's Island. The tale of St. Matthew's Island is a commonly cited case study in animal population ecology. By introducing only 30 caribou to St. Matthew's Island in 1944, not only were the reindeer wiped out, but it also upset a delicate existing balance on the island. Our intuition sometimes tells us that the absence of predators is a good thing for a species, but this is seldom the case. Predators limit the population numbers of a species and prevent it from overshooting what is known as the carrying capacity of an area. When a species overshoots this carrying capacity, what follows is usually a population crash, locally wiping out the species. This phenomenon of predator-prey interactions and subsequent population dynamics was investigated by scientist Carl Huffaker in 1958. He was an ecologist and agricultural entomologist at the University of California. He created simulations of mini-universes using oranges, orange-eating mites, and mite-eating mites. He noted that in most of his early orange universes, the orange-eating mites would undergo a population explosion before dying out due to a lack of food availability, much like our reindeer on St. Matthew's Island. In order to try and achieve a balanced population, he decided to introduce a predatory mite in the next experiment. When he added the predatory mites, there was initially an explosion of orange-eating mites, as with the previous universe, but then this was followed by an explosion of predatory mites, that suddenly had much more food available. When they finished eating all of the orange-eating mites, then they had nothing left to eat and also died. So simply adding predators was not an effective way to keep the universe going. Then what he did was deliberately increase the complexity of the environment. He made impassable barriers on the oranges using Vaseline. He stuck cocktail sticks into the orange skin to provide escape routes and hiding spots. With this approach, he achieved a sustained oscillating population of both predatory and orange-eating mites. The complexity of the environment meant that some of the mites were always able to evade predation and consequently breed during times of low orange-eating mite population and high orange availability. An island like St. Matthew's Island is limited in complexity due to its being surrounded by water. However, the presence of wolves or polar bears on the island may have kept the reindeer numbers low enough to stop the over-exploitation of lichen and ensure that the predator-prey population can continue to oscillate in harmony to increase the sustainable survival of both species. So there ends part two of our tale. I chose to do this tale on St. Matthew's Island because it's a very interesting unintentional experiment in population ecology. It highlights both the incredible survival capabilities of this species of curvidae and the importance of the balancing of species in the ecological systems that they live in. Thanks for listening, and if you're enjoying these tales, please subscribe, and if you're in a position to do so, consider supporting the Tales of the Wild podcast on Patreon. There's a link in the description to do this. Thanks so much to those of you who are already supporting the podcast in this way. See you next time on Tales of the Wild.